This is the Austin Life Church podcast. For more information, please visit us at austinlifechurch.com. Good evening. Happy happy Sunday. How are we? All right. I think there were like six people there. It's like six times the increase from last time, so that's, that's great news. Does anybody know how to turn this thing? What's going on? There it goes. Perfect. Perfect. So uh, Psalm 99 is where we're going to be. If you have a Bible, uh, I just want to invite you to go ahead and turn to Psalm 99. Verses are going to be on the screen as well. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some in the back. Right, Mike? I can't see. Yep. Mike will hand you one. Just give him one of, uh, one of these numbers there, and uh, he'd be glad to bring you a Bible. If you don't own a Bible, take that one with you. Uh, it is yours to have. Um, but yeah, Psalm 99 is where we're going to be. Uh, you'll hear this again today, uh, later today, because we oftentimes need multiple reminders. But uh, this is the last Sunday that we're going to meet in this building. Um, so thank you, Mission Possible. Uh, they have been phenomenal in letting us meet here. Oh, there you go. Mike's clapping for them. I, I think they felt that. That was great. Um, but thank you to Mission Possible for opening up their doors and letting us meet here. So next week, we will meet at 10 a.m., so switching back to the a.m. time. Uh, I repeat, that's 10 a.m., uh, at 5925 Dillard Circle. So you will hear that again. You will see that address, 10 a.m., 5925 Dillard Circle. Uh, if you need a ride, there is a request for a ride through our ride share on the app. Um, or if you just know somebody, be like, hey, I need you to pick me up um, and set that up. If you, uh, it's near the, the, the metro stop. Um, it's a really central location. And so uh, just know that that is where we are switching next Sunday and we'll have services from Vince Forth on Ways. Um, that's proper grammar, by the way. Uh, 10 a.m. Anyways, uh, Psalm 99. So as I was, was studying this psalm, um, just reading over some other, some other pastors and uh, sermons and reading some books, I was reminded of a guy by the name of Chuck Colson. Anybody, anybody know that name? Chuck Colson? Come on, raise, raise it high. Hampton? Yep. All right, we got, we got two. Awesome. Good. Uh, so Chuck Colson uh, passed away a few years ago, but um, is one of the most famous voices for Christ in our country um, in the last several decades. Um, and so he was the founder of Prison Fellowship Ministries, uh, which has ministered to thousands upon thousands of inmates and former prisoners and their families, uh, and has done an amazing work to give hope to those who thought there was no hope, who thought that they had reached the end or they were too far gone. Um, he brought in a message of hope uh, that, that gave them a different path uh, in Christ. The amazing thing about his story is the heartbeat for prison fellowship ministries began inside of him while he himself was a prisoner in the federal prison system. So at, at 38, Colson became the private counsel to President Nixon. Uh, and so, uh, I, I mean, I, that's, that is incredible to have that platform at that age. He had the ear and the confidence uh, perhaps the most powerful person in the country, maybe the world at that time. Uh, but he also then uh, learned that he needed to get things done. And so he would cut corners, he would deceive, he would cheat, he would do whatever he had to do to get the job done, always finding a way to be able to justify himself and believe that what he was doing was right and the other people were wrong in some way. Um, and, and so with that, he rose in power and, and had just an Im immense, immense um, power with the president and the country. Uh, however, eventually everything that was happening came to light in what is famously known as the Watergate scandals. Uh, so Colson was one of the 
many that were indicted within those scandals. Um, and so around that time, though, uh, everything began to be exposed. So everything that he had done, all of his deception, started to surface and to come to light. But even more than that, it was through that, that bottom, that crashing moment, um, it's oftentimes in those low moments, right, where we were finally humbled enough to say, okay, something's off, that, that he began to look for answers and knew that nothing he was trying to satisfy his life with was working. Around that time, Tom Phillips was a friend of his, and Tom uh, Phillips trusted Christ at a Billy Graham crusade and invited Chuck over uh, and wanted to share with Chuck about Jesus. Uh, begrudgingly, Chuck shows up, listens, and, and it was then that Chuck was confronted with the gospel of hope, that Jesus came to die and forgive his sins so that his guilt and shame could be released, and that Jesus rose from the dead so that by faith Chuck could have a life of freedom. That, that was the, the gospel message that Tom Phillips told Chuck that night, and, and it, he didn't trust Christ right away, but it wasn't long after that he surrendered his life to Jesus. That he laid down his way for the way of Jesus and became a changed man. So the, the challenge then came that uh, his faith was immediately put to test in the, in the Watergate scandal. The, the defense um, came and offered him a plea that if he would lie about this misdemeanor over here, that they would basically let him off with a slap on the wrist and, and a little bit over here. Um, but... But Chuck was incredibly convicted at this point. He knew that to follow Christ meant that you couldn't just try to live one, one foot in darkness and one foot in light. He knew that to follow Christ was to surrender his life and to follow him in everything. And he believed that if he honored God, God would honor him. And so he willingly confessed to his crimes. He exposed everything to the court and was sentenced to one to three years in a federal prison. As he was walking out, he was addressed by the media, and he said, what happened in court today was the court's will and the Lord's will. I have committed my life to Jesus Christ, and I can work for him in prison as well as out. And so he went to prison. But it was there that prison fellowship ministries began. It was in that moment of darkness that thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people would find the light of Jesus Christ because God works in all situations. And what the devil means for evil, God means to use for good. What changes someone like that? Or what changes someone where they, they are willing to cut any corner possible to the place where they, they won't, they'll go to prison before lying? Right, like what, what changes a person in that way? And Colson said that he encountered the Holy Lord and had a taste for the majesty of God that would forever change him. That once you come to encounter who God is, your life cannot be the same. And he knew it. He had a taste for the majesty of God, and that taste would cause him to desire truth with God more than a lie, and freedom from prison. Because he encountered the holy God. As we look at Psalm 99, that's the main point of this psalm, is that the Lord is holy, and our lives should respond in worship. 
that, that the Lord is holy. That's who he is. It doesn't change about what you or I think. It doesn't change about what's going on around us. The Lord is holy, and that should move us to give our lives in worship. So I want to read Psalm 99, and I want to ask you to read it with me. The Lord reigns. Let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies in the statute that he gave them. O Lord, our God, you answered them. You are forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord, our God, and worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord, our God, is holy. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. The Lord is holy. And Psalm 99 assumes that because he is holy, our lives will respond in worship and exaltation. The entire Bible assumes that when we encounter the holy God, our lives will respond differently. Our lives will respond in worship because he is holy. Because he is holy, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord of all. That's who he is. So what does it mean that God is holy? What does it mean? What does it mean that the Lord is holy? Just think about it for a second. How would you define that? You don't have to answer out loud, but anyone else struggling to put a definition to that? Maybe, okay, certain. I did. I struggled with that. Like, what does it mean that he's holy? Like, I've heard that word for as long as I can remember, right? I mean, we, we sing songs as, as long as I can remember. Like, but what does it actually mean that the Lord is holy? And, and what if that doesn't actually do anything to me? Because anybody else like, like me, like, no, okay, the Lord is holy, but, but how many of you felt chills running through your body at that thought? Anybody else taken aback and undone at the reality that the Lord is holy? It's because it's this concept that has gone us. So we can't just into our little vocabulary and put a simple definition. It's that this word is otherworldly. To be holy is outside of us. At the basic level, the word holy means cut off or separate. The word holy means cut off or separate. So something is holy if it is cut off or separated from the common. If it, is, if it is separate from the ordinary, it doesn't mix with what is common in today. Something is holy, it is unique and, and unlike any other, but not in a, in a bad way. For it to be holy, it's, it is a cut above the rest, in a class all of its own. There is nothing that fits within that category if it is holy. You're not going to find a rival or a match. You're not going to say like, okay, this is holy and this is holy at the same time. No, to be holy is to be unique and set apart. Nothing stands in its place or next to it. 
When the Bible says that the Lord is holy, it means that there is no one or no thing like him. There is no other God like him. There is no other being like him. There is no other created object like him. The Lord is holy means he is in a category above all else by himself. Nothing rivals who he is. Completely unique. 1 Samuel 2 says, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Isaiah 40, 25 says, To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. We're not going to be able to compare anything else next to the Holy Lord. He is above all and unique on his own. Set apart. And the Bible tells us that our response, because he is holy, is that we should worship him and exalt him. That should be our response. Anybody else knowing what it should be and also been struggling for that to be a reality in their life? To know that the Bible says the Lord is holy, therefore I should worship him, but then just thinking like, I, uh, I don't really know that I do that. And so what do we do with that? Why, why not? Why does the fact that the Lord is holy not move us? So I think there's two things that we can do with that. One, we have no control over. I mean, kind of, I guess. We can play a part in. The other, we can do something about. The first is that God would simply reveal his glory to us. That God would spiritually, supernaturally open our eyes to see him that he would reveal his holiness in, in just a glimpse to us, his glory to us. And, and you and I, we don't get to call those shots. We don't get to tell God what to do. But we can ask. We can ask like Moses, and we can ask him to reveal his glory to us. And so that's what I want us to do right now. I just want us, and, and if you don't want to, that's okay. You, you can just hang, and, and, and that's all right. But I believe that if we see the glory of God tonight, our lives will never be the same, ever. It will forever be better. And I think a lot of times we don't see his holiness and his glory because in pride, we don't want to. We'd much rather just do our own thing. And so if you're willing, I just want to invite you, will you open your heart before the Lord right now? Will you ask him to reveal his glory to you, his holiness to you, to let you see just a glimpse of his holiness. So let's take a second and do that.
God, hear our prayers. Answer them in kindness as you see fit. Amen. So I think one of the reasons that the, the holiness of God doesn't move us to worship is we just have a poor view of his holiness. We don't, we don't have a good view. And we, we can ask him to show us, to open our eyes to see him. The second thing we can do, we see in, in Colossians 3. In verse 2, it says, Set your mind on things that are above and not on things of this earth. That is a, a command. That is something that you and I get to choose to do. We can choose to fix our eyes on him. We can choose to look at the revealed character and nature of who God is, to see this holy Lord because he has revealed himself to us. He's revealed himself in his word. He's revealed himself through the person of Jesus. That is our choice. We can fix our eyes on things of this earth that will fade away and will let us down and will not satisfy, or we can do what Colossians says, and we can set our minds on things above. We can look ahead to the Holy One and see himself revealed to us. And that's what we also get in Psalm 99. We, we get three attributes of this holy God, and we get to see a little bit more of, of him. And I believe it's these attributes that will ultimately open our eyes to see him more and more and more and move our hearts to worship. And here are the three attributes that we'll see. One, the Holy Lord is king and reigning over all. The Holy Lord, he is king and he is reigning over all. Two, the Holy Lord is just and does what is right. He is just and he always does what is right. And three, the Holy Lord is merciful and moves near in kindness. So the first thing that we see about this God, we see right out of the gate in verse one, the Lord reigns. He reigns. Let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He's exalted over all the people. The first thing we see about this God is that he is king. He reigns. He's in control. He's the authority. Nothing goes beyond him. As people, we understand the reality of authority. We may not like it, but we all understand that reality. We all either have bosses that we have to report to, and if we don't do what they say, that's not going to go well for us, right? We, we all, as children, have parents that, at least for a while, we had to do what they asked us to do, and if, if we didn't do what they asked us to do, that didn't go so well, right? Like, that's going to that's gonna go poorly. We have, we have authority of just nature, right? Like, there's, there's certain things that we cannot beat, we are not bigger than, we are not stronger than, let's go stand out in the road and let a car run into us and we're going to see who has the authority there, right? Like the, that's the nature of authority. We understand that there are things above us and what the Bible is telling us is that there is one above everything. There is one king who reigns over all and that should move us to tremble. Psalm 24, one through two says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein. The world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. That tells us that you and I are created and under the authority of the Lord. He is the king and he is reigning on his throne. He calls the shots. He does what he pleases. He is in charge. Nothing happens outside of his sight, outside of his understanding. And when it does, it gets dealt with. 
Because he is the Lord. He is in control. And that should move us to humility and awe. When we know our proper position, when we stand before something that is exponentially bigger than us, that should move us to awe. And when it doesn't, we know our heart is prideful. When the fact that the Lord reigns doesn't move us to tremble, our heart is prideful. Just like King Belshazzar. Belshazzar, we see in the time of Judea, Daniel chapter 5, we see Belshazzar step up. His dad, Nebuchadnezzar, maybe the, the name that you're more familiar with, his dad was king before that, but, but kind of thought he was, he was all that, and so God removed him, and up comes Belshazzar, who then thinks he's all that, and thinks he's the king, and he can call the shots, and he can do what he wants to do and live the way that he wants to live, a lot kind of how like we like to live. Um, we may not call ourselves king or queen, but we sure do like to call the shots for our lives. And we sure do like to be king or queen of our own lives. And Daniel sees this with Belshazzar, and he warns him. He says this, talking first about his dad, Nebuchadnezzar. When his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken away from him. So Daniel's warning Belshazzar, hey, your dad, Nebuchadnezzar, when he thought he was all that, God, God went ahead and took care of that and took him off of his throne. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you, you and your lords, your wives, your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways you have not honored." Daniel looks at Belshazzar and he sees the folly of his pride and he sees Belshazzar rising up and thinking that he can call his own shots and he says, oh my gosh, do you not know that God holds your breath in his hands and at any moment because he is Lord and reigns, he can choose and close that up and you're done. Yet in your pride, you think you can sit on the throne and take his crown and his warning is there is one king, one Lord, and that should move us to tremble because it's not us. It's not us. We are here tonight breathing because God has chosen to put breath in our lungs. It's not ours. And that should move us to awe and humility. And when it doesn't, we know that like Belshazzar, our pride has risen up. And we think that we can sit on the throne. The Lord, he reigns. The holy Lord, the perfect, unique, set-apart one, he alone is on the throne. He does what he wills. And he does it right. That's the next point. He does what is right. We see he goes on, he says, the king in his might loves justice. You have established equity, you have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. The king loves justice. He does what is right. 
The king does what he wills. It's his call. He makes the choice, and he does what is right. Every single time, the Lord does what is right. He does what is right for you and for me. And that's, that's both encouraging and absolutely terrifying. It's encouraging because he does what is right. He, he does what is right for those who are oppressed and who those who are hurt. In Psalm 61, it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. To, he sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who, are mo- who mourn. The justice of God is going to comfort those who mourn. The justice of God is going to heal those who are broken. The justice of God is going to do right to those who are oppressed. And so that is great news that the justice of God will do right every single time. But the fact that God is going to do what is right is also terrifying when we realize that we are the guilty ones before the judge. That we are the ones who have sinned against him and he is going to do what is right to us. He is going to execute his justice. He is not going to mess up on his verdict. He's not going to get it wrong. He's going to do what is right every single time. And when we, who are the guilty, stand before him, it should terrify us that that is what's going to happen. That he is just, and he does what is right. The Bible says that we are created in his image. That our purpose in life, when God breathed existence into us was that from every moment of our lives we would reflect his image to the world around us that when people see you and me they see the character of god that when they hear the words come out of our mouth they hear what god would say when they see how we treat other people they see how god would treat other people that when they look at us they see the imprint the the fingerprint the representation of god himself through our lives And yet so often then the story we're telling of this God is that he's selfish. And the representation we are giving of this God is that he's prideful and egotistical. That he's quick to anger. And that he's slow to forgiveness. And that he wants his way. That is an insult to the king of this world. And when we sin against him, When we go our way instead of his, that is cosmic treason. That is us wanting to sit on the throne and take his crown and put it on our head. It is treason against God. If we try to go and take the spot of the president, take him out and take his spot, of this country, what's going to happen? You're going to be arrested and convicted of treason. And yet that's what we want to do to the God and king of this world. By, by going our way and not following his way and taking his spot as the one who's in charge and rules over own, God's blessing will not come for those who are dishonoring his name because it is treason against him. And he is going to act justly and do what is right towards that sin every single time, which is terrifying. Except God is also merciful. There's hope because God is merciful and he moves near in kindness. And that's what we see in the last point. So God, he is, the Lord is holy and he is king and he sits on his throne and he is just and he is going to always do what is right. He's going to treat us fairly. He's going to give us what we deserve, which is not great news because we are sinful, but at the same time, God is merciful. 
and he moves near in kindness. It says Moses and Aaron were among his priests, and Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. God, he answers Moses and Aaron and Samuel. He forgives them of their sins. And, and if you don't know, these guys got some sins. Moses has murder under his belt. Aaron, while Moses is on the, on the mountain, Aaron's like, hey, let's, work, let's pull our gold earrings together and let's melt it down and build a cow out of this gold and let's worship that. Samuel has idolatry on his heart, right? Like, these guys, it's not like they're sinless. And God is just, and he's going to do what's right with them, but he executes, he brings mercy. And mercy doesn't mean that God's not just. Mercy just delays God's justice so that grace has a chance to come in and intercede. So God is going to execute his justice, but mercy comes in and creates space so that grace has a chance to come in and step in between. So that the execution of God's justice can fall on someone else instead of us so that the punishment of our sins can fall on someone else instead of us. That's what mercy does, is it delays God's just wrath so that the grace of someone else can step in between and take God's wrath in our place for our sins. He is reigning. He's always going to do what's right. And he's merciful and creates a way so that that sin can be punished in someone else. That mercy when we know that we are the guilty ones, that mercy should move us in worship and in awe of this God. That's what happened with Isaiah. In Isaiah 6, we, we see this story play out. So I wanted to read this to you of God, Isaiah's encounter with the Holy Lord. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. He sees the Lord reigning, and he knows right away there's one who's in charge. That's it. Above him stood the seraphim. So these angelic beings that are without sin, each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. So these angelic beings that have not sinned on this planet still don't find themselves worthy to look at the Holy Lord. So they're covering their face, and with two wings, they cover their feet because they're on holy ground, and they don't deserve to stand in his presence. And with two wings, they're flying so that they can serve this holy Lord. And one called out to another, and they said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. These seraphim, these perfect angelic beings are like, no, there's one above us who is unique and a cut above us, that we're not even worthy, and he's holy, he's above us, he's greater than us. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah, he said, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of, of a people of, an, of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah, he's a prophet of Israel. You don't just get that job because you're some average person. Like, he is, he's a good dude. Like, he's a moral and upright person. When he speaks, he says, thus says the Lord. He's a prophet 
of the Lord. And yet when he finds himself in the presence of the holy God, he is undone. Absolutely unraveled at his core because he knows at his depth that on the outside, everyone else may think he's a good person, but in his core, he is wicked before this holy God. And he is absolutely undone. And he knows that the Lord reigns and that the Lord is holy and is going to do what is right. And that means he is finished. But mercy steps in. It says, one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. That the guilt that he deserved to be punished for was removed and, and forgiven. That he could now stand in the presence of the holy God because his sins were removed. And what's his response? I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. That the progression of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is that people, mankind, comes into a realization that God is holy and that he is reigning and that he is going to execute justice against those who have done him wrong. And that means all of us are guilty. But God is also merciful and brought grace in so that our sins could be forgiven. And when we see who we are and what God has done to forgive our sins, that our hearts will move in worship. That is the flow of the Bible. So how did that happen for us? How, do, how does this fit into our story? It's that you and I have sinned against God, and we are deserving of his punishment because he is just. But his mercy has delayed the execution of that justice so that we'd have a chance to receive his grace. And the grace of God is this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, for the forgiveness of sins. The grace of God is this, that the Holy One Jesus came and took on the sins of the unholy me so that the unholy me could be made holy by Jesus. That that is his grace. And that when we trust him by faith, our sins are forgiven and atoned for on the cross of Christ. And that when he rides, since he rose from the dead, I am given a new life, righteous in the sight of God. Made right in the presence of the holy God. Now I, like Isaiah, can stand in his presence. And I don't have to fear or worry that the wrath of God is for me because it was taken out on Jesus in my place. This is what the Holy Lord does. This is who he is, and this should move us in worship. Have you received this grace? Does it amaze you? Does it amaze you that the Holy One, Jesus, would come and die for us, the unholy, who are actively hostile against him? Who does that? Who loves like that? And yet it's the king of this world who loves us like that. The Lord is holy. 
He reigns. There's none above him, certainly not you and me. And he is just. He will always do what is right. And praise God, he is merciful. Because my sins deserve to be punished. And Jesus took that punishment in my place. It's his mercy that delayed my execution of justice so that I could trust that grace and my sins forgiven. And the same invitation is for us. And now he's worthy of our praise. Right here tonight and tomorrow morning when we go to work, he's worthy of our worship. And when we're tired and we don't really want to deal with it, he's worthy of our worship. And when we've messed up and we've sinned again, he's worthy of our worship as we repent, that we return to him. Y'all, we have much too high a view of ourselves. May the grace of God humble us that we would properly posture our hearts before him and give everything we have and surrender to him. And in that, we're going to find that we lose nothing and gain everything. When we surrender all, we lose nothing but, or we lose nothing but gain everything. That's what we get in Christ. Everything. The Lord is holy. And that deserves our worship. Let's pray to this God. God, I know that my words will never do justice to who you are. But your word is enough. Father, I'm asking that you will take Psalm 99 or another one of these verses and that you will speak loudly and clearly to us that we will see you, the Holy Lord. And that our hearts will be moved in humility to put away ourselves and to lift up and exalt your name, the King of all kings and Lord of all lords, that you would receive the praise that is worthy of your name. God, we confess that we so quickly go our own way. That we get consumed with the things around us rather than with you. We lose our way, all of us. God, you're so kind and patient to pull us back. for freedom tonight in, in you, Jesus, that we would surrender our lives fully, lay everything down and gain everything in you, Jesus. Jesus, you tell us, what does it profit us if we gain the whole world and lose our soul? Lord, don't let that be us, please, in your kindness, in your mercy. Open our eyes to see you.
Thanks for tuning in to the Austin Life Church Podcast. To help support us, please take a second to rate and review us on iTunes and visit us at austinlifechurch.com.